the stakes are too high for you to stay home. Good morning, world, and welcome to the Racked Off, your definitive podcast guide to the world of smart contract security and Web3 security research. I'm your co-host, Gregory, bringing you the latest market insights, discussions about recent hacks, and the most thought-provoking issues facing our space today. In this podcast, we strive to create an informative atmosphere where professionals, smart contract security engineers, cybersecurity specialists, whitehead hackers, and researchers can gather and engage with the cutting-edge topics of Web3. Today, we're honored to have with us Peter Robinson, a luminary figure in the field of blockchain security. Peter's name is synonymous with innovation, pushing the boundaries of what's possible in cryptography and pioneering the new methodologies with experience spanning across renowned organizations like RSA and Consensus and his notable contributions in Uniswap. Dr. Robinson brings a wealth of knowledge and insights. In this episode, we'll discuss how artificial intelligence can aid in finding security vulnerabilities in smart contracts and explore the challenges and limitations in its use. We'll also investigate the latest trends and developments in blockchain security, especially how the landscape has evolved to mitigate breach attacks. We hope to provide our audience of dedicated white hat security engineers and cybersecurity professionals with a wealth of insights, trends, and ideas. So sit back, tune in, and let's embark on this knowledge-filled journey with Dr. Peter Robinson. We prepared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Security engineering group worldwide. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's. Um, I think it's it's good, you know, giving people the opportunity to get a T-shirt that you know might be. I mean, yeah, they're interesting. I mean, interesting rather than just um, you know, like your standard boring T-shirt. Hey. When exactly. when this when this idea comes to, um, what to do the um the the t-shirts? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. People have been asking about it for years. So, <laughs> okay. yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. So it was hard for us to synchronize because we have three different time zones uh, all all over the world. I'm in Canada. Igor uh, is in Europe. In Belgium and you're in Australia, but finally, yeah, glad that we did that. Managed to do that. Yeah. Great. So uh, let's start. Let's start our session today. Uh, so yeah. Let's just. Uh, we start from the question. So uh, yeah. Uh, let's do the first question. Um, let's dive into the using of LLMs for spotting security flaws and contracts. Let's try to quantify it a bit. Uh, Peter, in your experiences working with AI, could you shed some light on the accuracy when it comes to identifying security vulnerabilities in smart contracts? Yeah, so I don't think you want to think about it as um, accuracy. It's just finding anything is um, a pretty amazing effort all by itself. You know, these are tools that aren't you, that you're just running and they're able to find stuff, which I think is um, pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, as, so I did a, a bit of analysis and where I had a contract which had no information at all, um, just, you know, stuff one, stuff two, stuff three, and it was able to find bugs where, you know, the people who um, had a look at it, they couldn't find anything. Um, and importantly, actually, I think the greatest insight that I've had is that AI tools can um, look at um, comments and the variable names and from there in, infer how the code should be working and can compare the code to the comments. 
And so, you know, that's something that you're not going to get with a static code analysis tool. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Um, so the next question about AI. Um, now, while AI can be incredible, incredibly powerful, no solution is perfect. Uh, so I'm curious, what are some limitation or potential challenges you faced when you use ChatGPT or other LLMs for security testing? Yeah, so um, what, I, what I found was that um, the, um, yeah, what I, what I found was that the, the tools um, sometimes are very, very um, uh, you know, sure about their answers. And even if their answers are completely wrong, they're still very sure about them. And so it means that you, you can't just be a novice um, blockchain developer and hope to use the tools to find bugs for you because it might tell you to do the wrong thing. So I think that's probably the greatest challenge. It feels to me that um, it kind of describes our nature of humanity, like the way that AI responses and the way it, it it's sure about its answers. It's kind of sometimes, uh, yeah, just explains like how how humanity, like how human mind works sometimes. Yeah, because it was trained by our humans and it's interesting, interesting point. But yeah, thank you for your answer. Look, actually, if you're using your thoughts on um, trained by humans, it's an interesting personality trait though, um, probably coming from the personalities of the people who um, did the training. So, um, you know, some cultures, um, are more differential, um, and um, yeah, you know, like rather. And I think you you often find, dare I say it, young blokes are far more you know sure of themselves, even if they're wrong. Whereas if you were to have um, a woman um, who had trained it, you know, then she's far more likely to think, well, am I sure that's the right answer? I mean, it's a like, um, dare I say it. Um, so in the mines in Australia, you know, how you see these huge trucks. And so they've realised that having women drive those huge trucks is much better than men because men are just so full of their own bravado often that they'll do more, I mean, take more risks. And so I guess it's really, it shows the risk-taking behaviour of the people who train the AI tools maybe. You know that they so they end up being certain there when they're wrong. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating. We have actually the same story in Canada, like with trucks and drivers, like women drivers versus men drivers. Yeah, completely understandable. <laughs> yeah, so moving along, uh, let's discuss something that goes hand in hand with AI testing, the prompting part. Uh, so this always has intrigued me. Uh, the way a subtle change in how we prompt uh, ChatGPT can completely change the output uh, of, uh, of the prompt. So could you elaborate on how prom prompting affects the outcome of the tests? What do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so, what, what I, so when I tried it, um, just saying, are there bugs yielded like one set of results? And so I think perplexity um, wasn't finding things. It was given great information, but it wasn't finding anything. And then I think I added in, do you have any suggestions? And so it, it ended up coming down to how the, um, how the AI tool interpreted the words I was using and how it classified bugs. And so 
um, you know, it, it really does come down to the, the language. And so I guess you've got to be quite careful with the language and maybe try a few things. Um, the other thing with prompting is that um, often you can specify the, you know, the, where, the type of output that you want and you can ask for all sorts of details. And doing that sometimes can yield better results. Um, and so I know some people I worked with, with ended up coming up with this very long um, prompt and which gives columns, says bring, put it out in markdown format, um, you know, and even, you know, give me the line number that where the error is. So don't just say there's an error, but give me line numbers as well. So you can do a lot with prompts. Yeah, I, I just want to add here a couple more things. So from my personal experience, I've I've tested out a lot of different ways of prompting with uh, ChatGPT and different other LMs. So one of the interesting thing is that to try um, to put the your ChatGPT into the state of uh, of being some somebody. So literally, you can text, you can type, uh, act like an auditor, like a smart contract auditor, and sometimes the results was much better than you just type it please find vulnerabilities here so yeah that's one thing and another thing is um to add in the end of the prompt to add um do it step by step this kind of prompt usually adds some kind of uh, it's hard to explain but yeah it's just interesting how it works when you add the in the end the type um you can you, you can type the um do it step by step the results usually much better than you just prompt something to, to do, ask it to do something. So yeah, just um, interesting points here. Thank you so much for the answer here. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's interesting. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to know the, you have a, such a great experience in the past, right? And I know that you are, you are right now working in the immutable, but you have a quite interesting journey before. Um, can you share with us a bit about your background and when you start your great experience, you know, uh, way? Um, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I've um, actually been working for more than 30 years. And, um, yeah, the first few jobs were a bit haphazard. Um, worked in um, a... Yeah, worked, worked in some short jobs that didn't last too long. And then I worked in an electronics company doing electronics stuff. And actually, one of the coolest things we did there was it would have, um, you know, in a bowling ball, how you've got holes. And so they wanted the, the, this guy wanted us to be able to design something so it would spin the ball such that the holes would always be up, you know. So, um yeah, and so it's all about differential, um, you know, like working out the forces as you're spinning it and going, oh, there's less mass in this little area, and so having it come up. So, I mean, that was a really cool company, um, but unfortunately um, they um, ran out of money. Um, and then I, I worked at um, a few large companies, um, and uh, I worked at Lucent, Bell Lab Innovations, where we had 400,000 employees, and I worked on a, a project team of 2,500 people developing a telephone system. And and it, it's amazing to see I worked with someone who, I don't know, in part you could say it was in his fault because this, is, this guy, he'd used decimal, hex, and octal um, numbering all in the um, one set of code. And this was assembler code inside a telephone. 
And anyway, at the end of the day, that whole project was end of life and which cost the company about half a billion dollars, which um, was a darn lot of money. I mean, it's still a lot of money. But so it really showed to me that, you know, like being really careful with the quality of code is super important because it can end up, you know, killing a whole project because you people just can't get it working. Um and, um, yeah, then I worked in um, some startup companies, I ran my own startup company in Rome in Italy, um, having an interactive street directory um, and a hotel booking system. Um, so it was an early dot-com company and, again, went broke, um, you know, didn't make any money. Um, but then I ended up working at a company called RSA, um, which is a security um, company and um, IT or IT security company. And so it's known for, so the secure ID tokens, the numbers where the um, digits change and, you know, you have to enter in that um, two-factor authentication. So they invented that technology. And um, so I worked as a advanced development lead there and um, and um, so engineering manager, but also did a whole heap of patents at that company and then went from there, like, um, so um, Dell bought out um, RSA. or bought, So EMC bought RSA, Dell bought EMC. And um, it was interesting that, you know, I was starting to work on blockchain technology at, in that era. And, um, yeah, I think Dell didn't see any future in blockchain. And so, um, anyway, then I ended up um, briefly being at Oracle and, anyway, didn't like, that didn't work out for me, and then worked at Consensus. And so at Consensus, um, I um, co-founded um, the um, Protocol Engineering Group. So there's one guy who, um, curiously enough, um, is from Canada who really, you know, led the effort, and then um, two others of us uh, came on board to really help build out the organisation and um, did some great things, then moved across to research and worked in um, research and consensus and developed some cross-chain technologies um, and worked on stateless with Ethereum Foundation and did all sorts of stuff. And then ended up um, getting, uh, briefly working at Uniswap um, as a consultant, um, working on their bridge assessment report. Um, and um, then um, have been working at Immutable where we're doing great things in Web3 gaming. And so we're creating this platform that um, people, games companies can use to do um, um, NFTs within their game. So essentially allowing people to have in-game ownership. And so I think that's really powerful and is the future. I think that's where things are headed with gaming and I think that Web3 gaming is going to be the next big thing in blockchain. Yeah, and also, as we start to talk about research, um, can you talk a bit more about the PhD thesis and all your, you know, the research journey from mm -hmm. your side, how it uh, started, what the best articles, in your opinion, you had and what the most interesting from them you can describe and share with us? Yeah, sure. So, um, so doing a PhD is, is hard. Um, and doing a PhD part-time is really hard. And so um, you, you know, I, I, I started the PhD because I wanted to be, um, you know, doing some new things and I'd done enough patents and things at RSA, I probably could have had a PhD. 
So, um, yeah, when I started out doing the PhD, it was all about um, post-quantum crypto analysis. So saying if quantum computers turn up, um, will everything in blockchain break or, you know, what will break first and what could you do about it? And then I realised that that wasn't actually a very big topic and then looked at ephemeral blockchains and um, realised that to have an ephemeral blockchain that, you know, starts, uh, does stuff, and then is closed down, you needed a discovery service. So I came up with um, the, um, the, the what is it, Ethereum Registration Authority, ERAs. And then um, I came up with um, some pinning technology, which is sort of stuff that's highly related to um, what we, where we now are at with um, roll-ups, where you're essentially um, putting the state onto a blockchain and trying to have it so you can provably um, show that the um, state's not correct. Um, and then I also worked on um, cross-chain communications. And so I came up with two atomic cross-chain function call protocols. So a function call protocol is all about you're executing a function in an, on one blockchain in one smart contract, and you can call it another function in another contract on another chain. And you could do that across, say, multiple chains and say you could have return values coming back. And if the um, if any of the parts of it fail, then everything's rolled back. Otherwise, every, all the changes are applied. And so you ended up having these two protocols that were really essentially two-phase commit protocols. And um, so that... Um, took six years um, and um, blockchain changed a lot in six years. So, um, yeah, but it's all done now. Thank you for sharing your experience. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a very deep and fascinating journey. Yep. So that move that makes me to move to our ne next topic is cross-chain communication between networks and security of that. So, yeah. Nowadays, there are thousands of blockchain out there and cross-chain communication became one of the hottest topics in Web3 space. Uh, so to begin with, I'd like to ask you to explain very briefly for our listeners, in case we have a beginners here, uh, what are the main methods of cross-chain communication and how it actually works? Just a quick high-level overview. Yeah. Um, so really what it comes down to is proving on one blockchain that something else has happened on a different blockchain and then being able to do something based on that. And invariably, you know, for most of the technologies, it comes down to some group of people getting together and saying, we saw, you know, there was some function that executed in some contract on this source chain. It emitted an event. We saw it. We agree that it happened. And then on the target chain, you trust that if those people have signed it, it did happen. And that, that for most of the cross-chain communication that's out there today, that's how it works. It's just down to multi-sig, so multiple people signing and having maybe a threshold. And there are all sorts of fancy things on top, but that's what it comes down to. Um, yeah, that's that describes everything. Uh, but one of the main issues with bridges uh why they became that popular 
to my mind, uh, from the security perspective, is that uh, they were not that secure and there were a lot of flaws uh, within them, within the contracts and architecture. So what are the main risks associated with cross-chain bridges and what are the most popular attack vectors on bridges in Europe? Yeah, so the, the real issue with, um, so with, with cross-chain um, and um, DeFi bridges, so essentially ones where you're transferring value across, the big issue that you invariably have is that <clears throat> the model you have is you have, um, say, an ERC-20 on the source chain and then you lock up that, um, that value on the source chain and you then mint some new value on the target chain. And so if you're really successful, you might have like $100 million that you've pushed across. But what that means is that your bridge contract on that source chain owns $100 million. So if you can work out, you know, how to hack that, you're doing well. And so the thing is that you've essentially created this huge honeypot. Um, and invariably, the contracts are moderately complicated. And so, you know, that's why you can have big problems. And so um, uh, a guy called Dr. Ermia Sabibi and myself um, and uh, with the help from some people at LeFi, um, created um, the cross-chain risk framework uh, where we analysed, um, you know, like how you could go about, um, you know, like designing for, you know, your architecture, your operations, your network um, and um, your implementation and just tried to analyse all the risks involved in cross-chain. And so... There, you know, there are quite a variety of, of issues. And I know you said, oh, what are the main ones? But invariably, there, it's because there's so many areas of possible issue of risk. And so if you look at it, you've got, um, say, the network layer. You've got, um, say, if the source blockchain, say if it can have a massive reorg, then, you know, if the whole idea is that you're proving that something happened on the source chain, if it has some massive reorg or um, if, if the um, people creating that blockchain are, could purposefully do a, you know, like start, sign two versions of reality. So, you know, that's a problem. And that does happen, has happened. Um, so you've got to really think about when I'm cross doing cross-chain between two chains, do I trust the operators of those blockchains, um, you know, and I mean, an example is say Ethereum Classic. Um, it had like a six-month level reorg, you know. So imagine, you know, does that mean that you know you need to wait at least a year before you um, would dare, um, you know, like bridge anything from Ethereum Classic? And I, I think the answer is you probably can't bridge anything from Ethereum Classic, not securely because there, someone could decide that they want to do a mega reorg and remove your transaction. Um, so then um, you've got the architectural risk. And so it really comes down to how the bridge has been designed. And, um, you know, so how many, how many parties need to sign something? Are there ways for... Um, just say one party to, you know, is there some centralization point somewhere? Because the fewer people you're relying on, the more likely you are to have problems. 
And so, you know, there are a whole lot of different architectures, but some of them end up being more centralized than others. And so not having that centralization risk is important. And so some of it could be, so there's some block header, maybe many people can push that across, but then maybe there's some other thing that only certain parties can move across. Or maybe it comes down to um, you're just going to have one centralized party that controls who the signers are. So they can then kick everyone off and just have one signer suddenly. So, and then you've got the um, implementation risk. So some people will um, like maybe they'll go off and they'll use an exotic programming language, or maybe part of it is that they'll be going to a, a blockchain and not many people know the language on that blockchain. So for instance, say if you're going to say Solana, I mean, this has been one of the problems with Solana is one of the hacks really came down to not enough people understood the programming language on Solana so could understand that, hey, that looks like there's a bug there. Whereas if there was, if it was on Ethereum and if it was in Solidity, more people would have been able to look at the code and hence probably would have found the bug. Um, there's all, yeah, so there's a whole range of issues. Another one that it, a good, like, uh, it's an architectural um, come implementation risk is, say, you've got um, data plane and um, control plane. So you control plane is how you, the messages you have for controlling a system, whereas data plane is the data that's going across the system. Now, if you merge those two, then you are going to have all sorts of problems where if you have them separated, you're all good. And so the poly network hack um, where they lost $600 million, that came down to them merging the control plane and the data plane. You've also got, um, say, operational stuff. Um, and um, so, you know, like, say if you've got a, a multi-sig, and there are lots of, you know, you say 15 out of 20 people need to sign this. So if it's the ability to pause the contract, that's really bad, you know, because when you need to pause, you've got to quickly try and get, you know, four, 15 people out of bed um, to do stuff and coordinate. Whereas um, maybe for upgrading the contract, you need to have, you know, a large number. So there's a lot of operational stuff that um, is important. And so... Um, you know, I think that there's there are a lot of aspects and a lot of it's all very complicated. And so, you know, if you look at, say, say the Nomad hack, that one was there was a um, operational path that didn't have the ability to pause. And so, hence, it could be just dragged, called over and over again with no ability to stop it from being called. As well as that, the code was upgraded and when they did the code upgrade, they didn't test the code against the Ethereum mainnet data. And so if they had have actually run their test system against the data that was on chain, and so they could essentially try out the, um, the deployment, they would have realized they had a bug. So that was an, a, a methodology issue. There's also things like um, having a security vulnerability response plan. And so if you've got a vulnerability response plan, then you'll be ready to go if there is actually a hack. Um, whereas if you have to work it all out on the fly, it's generally not going to be anywhere near as good. So there's a lot to it with um, bridges, but a lot of that applies to any DeFi project. 
All right. So just to sum up uh, real quick. So we have four types of risks that you mentioned above, right? So it was the networking risk. It was the architecture risk, the operational risk. And the, four one, the first one was implementation risk. Implementation risk, right. Among four, four of these types of risk, which one is uh, being, being used the most by hackers in order to exploit the contracts? What, what would you say? Uh, it's a combination. It's a combination. I mean, the, if, you, yeah, if you have bad architecture, then implementation and operations isn't going to help you. But then equally, if you have bad operations or bad implementation, then the others aren't going to help you either. So you've got to have all of them. So it's a matter of having all of those different types of risk sorted out. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But what, what we see from this year's data, uh, the cross-chain bridge attacks are not that popular in 2023 anymore, uh, as it was in 2022 in comparison. So we see a clear downtrend uh, in this type of hacks this year. So what, what were the most significant developments over the last year that makes bridge attacks less significant and less frequent uh, this year? Um, you already mentioned the, the cross-chain risk framework that you were developing last year. Um, maybe you can add something here, something else that was developed. Yeah, look, I, I don't think it's um, lots of people having a look at that framework suddenly. I think I'm sure there are a lot of people who have looked at it, um, but it takes time to change things. I think having multiple, um, you know, multi-hundred million dollar hacks has made people incredibly aware of you know the issues and so if you're a bridge operator i think that you know you a lot of them have probably spent an enormous amount of effort trying to improve their security and so i think having all these people aiming to improve their security has probably helped a lot um so i think that's what it's really come down to the reason why we've got fewer hacks this year is because there were lots of hacks in 2021-22 yep I got your point here. Um, yeah, that's that can be um, understandable. So my my next question is: Could you share with us which bridges are the most reliable today? Um, it's very tricky question, maybe, but um, which bridge architecture are the most successful? Uh, being not being hacked yeah. at least, and uh, what, what can you recommend to look yeah, into? Yeah, uh, look, I, I would I wouldn't want to recommend any bridge as such. So the Uniswap um, bridge assessment report came out recently um, and it recommended Wormhole and um, Axelar. Um, but that was for cross-chain governance. So it was just for a very narrow use case. So low rate, um, rarely used, but really highly important. And so if you're talking about DeFi bridge where you're, you know, want to transfer some some ERC20 tokens, it's a completely different ball game. And so at the end of the day, I it's um, you know, it's a very complicated thing. And I know for myself, if I'm going to do some cross-chain, you know, like moving stuff from what chain A to chain B, I'll end up using uh, MetaMask bridging. So MetaMask bridging uses bridge aggregators. The bridge aggregators use, use bridges. So the idea is that the bridge aggregators um, find out, work out what they perceive to be good solid bridges, 
and um, they're prepared to suspend bridges if they don't just think that they're still any good. And then MetaMask then on top looks at the, you know, uses those aggregators. And so though you might lose, say, I don't know, half a percent or something, you know, some small percentage and you're giving it to consensus, um, at the end of the day, if you do it using MetaMask, then you know it's going to get there and, you know, you're, you're, it's lower risk. And for me, um, lower risk um, and having the money, you know, turn up is more important than, um, you know, trying to get that last cent, but maybe the money doesn't turn up, you know. Um, and as well, if you do it within MetaMask, then, you know, you know you're in MetaMask, you know you're not on a phishing side. Whereas, I don't know, I sometimes I turn up to these, um, you know, these DeFi sites and I think, is this a real site or am I at a fake phishing site, you know, and is it not a real site? So, um, I think there's that concern as well. So that's why, um, at least for myself, when I've used um, done cross-chain stuff, I've actually used um, MetaMask. All right. So I, I have one more question. It's more of a visionary one. So I've got to ask you with all your experience, what's your take on the current Web3 security state in 2023? More importantly, where do you see it going? And uh, what are the main issues we're facing in the space today? Uh, what is your vision on that? Yeah, look, I think um, I think it will be really nice if the USA um, and the, their government, their um, their authorities, um, could you know work out what rules they want to have. I think at the moment, you know, you hear even people from within their SEC um, Securities Exchange Commission um, seemingly having dissenting voices on how things should be happening. And it just seems the, the ambiguity is not good. And so um, I think for the USA, that's not a good move. I think that it would be good for them to sort that out. Um, and I think so I think that's a big risk. Um, I think that um, so the contagion, so we had um, what the lunar coin crash and, you know, that terror stuff. And then that sort of um, helped highlight issues in FTX. And um, then the issues in FTX then I think are, um, you know, highlighting other issues. And it does seem like there's a, you know, like there's some moves against um, Binance um, and, and Coinbase, but Binance, they seem to, there seem to be some things which, um, don't sound too good, and it, so yeah, you do. I do wonder, like, if Binance has problems, you know, and it were to go the way of FTX, that would have a massive impact on the industry. But it's really hard to know, um, as from that perspective. Um, look, I think um, that you know, blockchain's here to stay uh, for sure, and I, I think that the Web three gaming. Um, it's providing real value to people. You know, people play these games, these computer games, and they, you know, they, they get really invested in them. And I think, you know, there's been some situations where, um, say, governments have, um, or in China at least, they um, essentially um, said, look, you've, you know, some game player had said something about democracy in Hong Kong. And so they just deleted the person's account, even though they had millions of dollars of in-game assets. 
And so I think, you know, things like that do make people wonder. And so I think having the ability to play some game and then you've got some in-game asset that you can trade for cash with other people, I think is, you know, that's really powerful. I mean, and I think it's a real also an enabler for people in, say, countries that maybe don't aren't as wealthy as, say, Belgium, Canada and Australia, where, you know, if you could... Um, if you've got an internet connection and I don't know a PS5 or a com- you know a computer of some sort, and you play some game, and then you're able to sell those in-game assets, you might be able to feed your family. You know, you, this might be a way of really bringing yourself out of poverty. Um, which I know it sounds crazy. You know, so play a computer game and um, you know like send home home money to keep your family going. But I think it's going to be a real thing. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I think that, that that's going to happen. I think it'll be interesting to see whether, so Uniswap V4s come out and it'll be interesting to see where that, well, in, the design for Uniswap V4s come out. So it'll be interesting to see where that takes us um, because um, it's um, allowing essentially a plug-in, how I think of it is like a plug-in architecture. And so, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages of that. I think the roll-up space is going to mature over the next year. Um, so Immutable's coming out with our ZKEVM, which is, you know, using Polygon technology under the hood. And I think there's a whole range, you know, we've got ZK Syncs coming along, uh, Consensus ZKEVM's going to be ready. We've got Scroll. And so we're going to have all of these different ZK technologies. So I think it's, um, you know, quite exciting. Yeah, great. And... Uh... As you kind of mentioned about the gaming, that it kind of uh, had an adoption for the blockchain in the world, right? Um, you know that Ethereum Foundation launched quite a few uh, year EIP proposals, basically 4771 and recent 6551 that was uh, created by Future Primitive, the dudes that basically allow smart contracts to uh, be an account. Can you talk about a bit about it more and explain it to the audience from your perspective how it works? Yeah, uh, look, I can't I can't say that I know all the details, but look, the whole idea of account abstraction, I think, um, is a really powerful one, and so the idea that you can have a you, you can have a contract on chain, and um, you can. Um, rather than you having to submit transactions, you can have a relayer submit a transaction for you and then stuff can happen on chain. And so you can have this, um, rather than just a private key, public key, you can have a wallet, which can have a whole heap of features and capabilities. Um, And you can, not having to have a, a key pair is also can be really good. You know, so you um, you do need to have some way of authenticating with the wallet, but you're not um, when when um, you think of your account, the account that you've actually got is that smart contract, and so I think that's pretty powerful, and I think that um, it'll allow for different authentication schemes as well. So not just ECDSA, you could imagine using you know other schemes and um, other ways. So. Um, at um, Immutable, for instance, we're using a two-of-two wallet. So we're aiming to allow the user 
to have um, an experience where they don't really need to know about their keys and they're just able to authenticate with the system and then be able to access their on-chain wallet. So, yeah, I think that's really powerful and really flexible. Yeah, thank you for the answer. Um, I want to ask you, we talked quite a bit about blockchain on Earth, but now let's take it to the space. Uh, Peter, I'm really intrigued by this. I know that you have done some quite research about the space uh, blockchain application in space. And uh, I know that with your kind of colleagues, uh, you did a great job and kind of visionary uh, implementation of it in the future. Can you explain a bit more and uh, your vision on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really you should be, I mean, I, I was a part of a team where we looked at um, blo um, blockchains in um, what, cislunar and so anyway, near Earth orbit and um, in interstellar space and um, out in the asteroid belt and just looking at, you know, based on latency and time. So you could imagine you've got um, two spacecraft that are out in um, in the, you know, outer solar system and they want to do negotiate a deal and, you know, using blockchain as a way of doing that. So that was one thing that we looked at was, you know, having essentially I'll pay you so for some um, propellant. So the idea is they use propellant to manoeuvre and so you could imagine this exchange between these two robotic spacecraft out in the asteroid belt. Um, so that, that was one thing. We actually designed a, a relatively unique blockchain technology to allow that to happen. Um, we then, another thing that um, we worked on was this multi-factor authentication system for satellite um, control. And so, um, you know, you, you can imagine that these satellites that we've got up in space, they can easily be, um, you know, or if you were a hacker, you could take control and then you could be able to take control of the satellite. So wouldn't it be good if there was a way of using, say, a blockchain system to um, essentially register that you want to do something, satellite checks, is this really you? Or, you know, essentially having two-factor authentication for um, IoT devices. And a satellite is essentially an IoT device. And so, yeah, so we worked on that and um, wrote a paper and um, I think um, David Highland Wood, Dr. David Highland Wood, went off and presented over at some um, Institute of Aeronautics um, conference. Um, so, yeah, that was um, pretty cool. Okay, great. And I think the final question from our side, um, it would be from audience. Uh, we've collected some of them and choose the best. And uh, the, um, the member of our community asked, so do you ever consider the possibility that national security agency could have fully or partially uh, compromised all cryptographic systems? Mm. Um, yeah, look, I, so I, I worked with um, some of those people um, at one point to um, help them with something. And, you know, they, they've got finite capabilities. Um, I think that's the thing to think about is that pe I think people overblow. They watch too many spy movies 
and um, they, you know, they, they sort of think that, you know, you can walk along the street and then someone in the NSA, MI5 or whatever can quickly bring up some security camera and then next thing they know they've got the, the plans for some building and all this sort of stuff. I, I, most of that stuff's not real. And similarly for cryptography, um, so breaking, um, yeah, break, being able to, say, break, um, say, the elliptic curve cryptography, um, no. I think that using classical computing, definitely not. Using quantum computing, I think we're all going to hear about it. I think that the... Um, private sector is probably a, as um, you know good at that as the um, as the the you know the the, the government the um, NSA um, and because there's a lot of money going into that sort of thing. In fact, you probably find a lot of the money going into it is from um, the NSA and others like them. So, yeah, whether um, quantum computers will blow everything out of the water, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, it's a bit like um, nuclear fusion. It's going to happen sometime soon, and we've been hearing that for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I think that so there was an initial thought that by 2025 um, quantum computers would break everything by 20, um, 2025, and that was that guesstimate was done in about 2015. And I think that's probably going to be wrong. Um, and so I think that we've probably got at least till 2030, maybe 2035, before we need to race around and find new algorithms. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think the NSA can break any every blockchain. I think that there are far easier ways of doing things than that. And um, yeah. I cannot pass the question about quantum computing, because for me, it's quite um, intensive topic right now because a lot of blockchains are uh, scary about this big thing that can come and destroy everything. Can you say uh, as a true final question uh, more about the state of quantum computing uh, right now in the blockchain industry? Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I I only see what you all see on the news. So, I um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, but the, that account abstraction we were talking about would help with that because that would remove the ECDSA signature and you could imagine you could have some other um, methodology. But it would be more than just blockchain that would have problems. I mean, we're all now using electronic um, money for everything. Um, and so if um, all of the SSL, HTTPS sort of stuff suddenly stopped working, then we're all in big trouble. So, um, yeah, I, th I think we've got a way, a way yet to um, for all those protocols to be able to switch over to alternative cryptography. But, um, look, good talking to you guys and um, have a great rest of your day, um, night and um, day. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... It's time to bring the episode of Racked Up to a close. Uh, thank you so much, Peter, for joining our podcast today. Uh, nice talking to you. Such an experienced person. And have a great day. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I want to express my sincere thanks to Dr. Peter Robinson for joining us today and for sharing his insights on the AI in security testing, the state of cross-chain bridges, and even the potential of blockchain's applications in space. If today's discussion has piqued your curiosity, we invite you to join us on Discord 
check out our website on rectoff.xyz and continue to explore the fascinating world of Web3 security with us. Stay tuned for more illuminating conversation with experts and innovators in the field. Remember, here at Rectoff, we are more than a podcast. We are a community committed to securing the future of decentralization. Until next time, stay secure and keep questioning the world around you.